0: Welcome to the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to talk about the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton Rossini. Join us here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Podserve just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first. It was snowing outside in Denver when I caught up with Karen Gibson. She told me it was in the mountains where she found the inspiration for her book, Silver Heels, Mountain of Love.
1: I miss it. I miss it desperately, even at 9 and 10,000 feet where I lived.
0: Why did you leave?
1: Uh, My husband died in 2013 he actually dropped dead at 43 of a seizure oh
0: my god I'm so sorry
1: it, it is what it is I, I've never really gotten over it and don't think I ever will and it's one of the inspirations behind the book because I, I kind of wrote him into it as you know as a character as far as the the way that he lived his life um it's kind of my tribute to him and and the woman that the, the book is loosely based on which is Silver Silverheels who was a woman that graced the dance halls of Buckskin Joe in 1861, Colorado, the Gold Rush. And she was known for her voice and her beauty. And when smallpox came through, she was urged by even the governor and many people to leave and go to Denver where it was somewhat safer. But she decided to stay behind and take care of the miners that were stricken with smallpox. And so it, it's it's a tribute to her in a way because she believed in the greatest love that God gave us, which is the willingness to put down your life for others. And it's also about the enduring love between a man and a woman that even can endure past death. As the, the legends go, there are several different stories about her because when you when you tell legends, people generally... Make them into another story. By the time they're telling their neighbor or you know their friend, it changes a little bit. So there are several different stories about her, and they are mixed with my dreams that I had about living up there. And I lived um, just a few miles from where Buckskin Joe's was in Fairplay, Colorado. And we find her just coming into town, having heard about gold being discovered. And she's brought in by a bar owner that knew her in Denver as a dancer and singer and brings her up to a bar that he owned, Buckskin Joe's, to dance and perform there. And she pe- becomes quite the sensation. And, and realistically in life, she was quite the sensation where people would come from Denver for miles and miles, other counties and even other states just to see her perform. And he's the first person that she lays eyes on when she gets off the stagecoach in Buckskin Joe's, and it's it's pretty much they fall in love after that, and he becomes her bodyguard because that so many men are following her around all the time, throwing jewelry at her on the stage, and and asking you know for her to leave and and marry them. And um, as far as I know, those are all true details that men would just throw themselves at her feet and so she had to have somebody look after her. And they they fall in love and they try not to admit it to each other, but they wind up together in the end and will actually do anything for each other.
0: What's the character's name?
1: Sven, S V E N.
0: And he's the one that's based on your husband?
1: Right. But she had a lover in real life and, and he gets stricken with smallpox and he passes away. And Silver Heels, actually, in real life, was stricken with smallpox also, but she lived through it. Three in ten died from smallpox, and it wiped out a couple hundred million people in a hundred and some years. Um, you know, it, it, was, it was a visible disease where if you, if you think of COVID, if you're looking at people that have blisters that are oozing on their face, you can just imagine if COVID was anything like that. With with no vaccine, you know, in sight or anything. So, uh, you know, that's what these people live through in in horrible conditions in the winter, uh, up in the mountains at 10,000 feet, where there's snow blowing through the cracks in your cabin, you know, and and all you've got is firewood, and you're you're stricken with this horrible disease. So, um, actually, she survived it after after her lover passes away. And the town takes up five thousand dollars and and this part of it is the, the true part. The town takes up five thousand dollars which is quite a purse at in, in that time to thank her for her service to the miners going around and caring for them while they had smallpox and they go to deliver the five thousand dollars and a plaque to her with a mayor and everything and she's no longer in her cabin. She's disappeared and they search for her for months and years and no one knows whatever happened to her they don't know if she went off somewhere else if she committed suicide because her looks had been taken by smallpox and she was deeply scarred but no one ever found her body or any any sign of her and they they searched they they had searches going on for miles around in the mountains for for years and and no one's ever seen or heard from her again. And, and Mount Silverheels is named for her up in the mountains in Park County.
0: So you've really written a piece of historical fiction here.
1: It is, uh, it's got a lot of history in it. And it's also my dreams, too. So it's, it's a mixture of the legends people tell about her, the stories, my dreams, and, and, histo- and, and, and history, too.
0: Great story, Karen. Thank you. David Lumley is a former CEO of several companies, including Rubbermaid, Black & Decker, Remington Shavers, but he started as a manager. And during the pandemic, he finally found the time to write his book, It's Impossible to Commit to Maybe, A Bold Guide for Business Managers. And uh, I have to say that's an interesting title. I mean, maybe is hardly a commitment, right?
2: Yeah, you're right. The idea of that is that uh, especially in the last 10 or 20 years, you know, with all the different owners of the company, there's private equity firms, there's public ownership, there's banks, there's the employees themselves. They ask the employees, you do all this and we'll do that. Well, when it comes for them to do their part, a lot of times that doesn't happen, right? Uh, whether that's longevity, compensation, uh, promotions, opportunities, and the idea of impossible to commit to maybe is that when both sides commit to success and working together, you have great success, which is what happened in my career. And a lot of times it's how you organize and how you pay people. And then you follow through with that. That tends to work. The other one doesn't. You know, think about how most companies are, and, and whether they're technology companies or, or goods companies, that someone makes something Right, then someone has to, to deliver it, sell it, bill it. And there's managers in all these levels. Somes are a manager, some's a director, some's a vice president. And they have a plan to follow. Well, what normally happens is if you have poor leadership, people keep changing the plan, especially the leaders. So the managers try to do this and they try to do that, and they try to do this, and the employees think, you know, they've lost their mind, right? <laughs> right? And, and we've lost our way. And the idea of this book is all the things I've learned and other mentors, and presidents, and companies I've learned about. How do you deal with how to make your bonus? How do you deal with with how to get hired? Why people get fired? Um, people's personalities, how they change, and what they tell you with what, what really is going to happen. And that was kind of the idea. Actually, for a quick side story, the actual line, it's impossible, maybe came from my father, of all people. <clears throat> And I was dating someone for a long period of time. We were supposed to get married. I was dragging my feet. And uh, then she said, well, I'll love you and I'll miss you. <laughs> so, so what happened after that was he and I were playing golf. He we said, well, you know, you're asking her to commit to a maybe. And it's impossible to do that. And that kind of rang true throughout the rest of my career. And, and you'll hear it back from people all the time. Like, oh yeah, they said they'd do this, if I did that, they didn't, but I did. And a lot of the book is how you make those things happen. You can't commit to them that maybe they'll pay you, maybe that you can have the hours you have, or, or maybe this company's for sale and maybe it's not. So those things happen to employees constantly. And, and that's why you get this turnover you have, which is dramatic turnover, if you think about it. I was involved in seven turnarounds. A turnaround means you have a good company, you have a good brand. It's not doing well. And that's usually lack of poor leadership, either at the ownership level or, or the leader himself. So you'll see this a lot in business. What made me write the book was, I was constantly told throughout my career, geez, you got to put this stuff in a book, lovely. all these things you and your teams have accomplished. And you've got to share that with people. And, and, and when I retired, the same thing happened. I got lots of calls about that. So I decided to do it. And of course, COVID gave you the perfect opportunity. You're a journalist. You have time. You have time, right? I, I wrote it in a, in a well, I wrote it at the top of a mountain and then I wrote it in a pool house because, you know, we didn't go anywhere, right? That was a big trip from the house to the pool house.
0: What are, what are the biggest lessons you've learned or that you pass on here?
2: I think the biggest lessons, um, let's talk about three of them. Number one is you have to build trust with people, with customers, with suppliers, and that means you, you have to tell the truth and do what you say you're gonna do. Now that sounds, that sounds pretty standard. No, it's not. So that's number one, it's in the book, it's throughout the entire book, okay? Number two, I talk a lot about um, working in a team and how to get everyone to play their part. That's another hard part to do in business, right? Everyone wants change, but no one wants it to affect them. Well, to, to create, create success, everyone has to do what they're supposed to do and do that and get in the right job. And, and I think number three is mentors are extremely important in your life, whether they're part of your family, whether there's a boss, whether they're an old boss, whether there's a, a, a teacher, it doesn't matter. People that can give you a, a good perspective of yourself. So you can go with your strengths in business and, and do the jobs you're best at.
0: So you would say the number one thing you have to do is figure out what your strengths are and go with that. And so many people have a difficult time doing that.
2: They really do. You know, I, I made I make a statement in the book. I said people plan their vacations better than their careers. Well, are what are your strengths? Are you in a company in an industry where where those will play to your advantage so you can get ahead and then you can make a money and be happy and go on vacations you want and live
0: happily ever after right david <laughs> thank you so much a very creative retired pipe fitter welder in indiana gary stock wrote a book called tales from grandpa so i'm going to go out on a limb here and assume you're a grandpa
3: yes i am
0: <laughs> did your grandchildren inspire your book
3: they are definitely the inspiration for the majority of the stories
0: how many grandchildren do you have i have six have you always been a poet? I read this as a in verse.
3: Yes, it is. And no, I am not. Uh, several years ago, I read a book by a guy named Megger, who was uh, an expert in adult education, because at the time I was a training coordinator for the shops at the factory that I worked at, and so I was trying to interested in in trying to write adult training. And he was kind of an inspiration because one of his books was How to Write a Book. So I attempted to write a book, but it didn't work really well. So I didn't think about it for very long. This was about when I was, I'm 73 right now. This was when I was about 55. And I wanted to write something to my grandkids for their birthdays and stuff. And for my missus for her birthdays and anniversaries and stuff like that. That was a little bit more... Personal than greeting cards. So I found myself starting to write my own birthday cards. And then the next thing I know, I'm in maintenance meetings at the factory and bored to tears. And so I start writing little verses about things that I've noticed in the meeting, people, things they're talking about. I mean, the best example I can give you is the one that I always remember the most. There's a box of donuts sitting in front of me. It makes my stomach so it's all that I can see. <laughs> and I started doing that a lot. And the next thing I know, my wife kind of looked at me and she says, maybe you ought to try to write a story. So I did. And so the first story in my book, Tales from My Grandpa, was the very first thing I ever did as a story. I can Lulume. It's about two little kids, a little guy and a little girl. And the little girl's dad is a military man in a conflict overseas, and Ike is uh, her support. And so there's a little story about how Ike helps her get by and and how when the dad comes home, he's so appreciative of what Ike had done for Lulu Mae. So those are the kinds of things that I thought about. There was There's like two of the stories or not don't have anything to do with my grandkids. That one is one of them. But the rest of them were all pretty much, they would say things to me, or they would tell me little things. And I would think, man, that would make a great story. So I would work on it. It took about seven or eight years to put 15 stories together.
0: Wow. Can you can you share one with me?
3: Let me read you my absolute favorite. Okay. It's one that's that isn't my grandchildren as much as it is my wife. Now, my wife died about a year and a half ago, and she is the one who said, maybe you ought to try to publish this. And so right after she died, I thought, well, by golly, I think I'm going to try, and I'll put it in her name, Uh, dedicated the book to her. And here's one that I call The Walls. Sitting at his table in the cabaret, in 1890's evening, there was no better way. In white tie and tails, sipping his champagne, the situation perfect, no way could he complain. He looked up to see, coming through the door, what seemed to be an angel walking across the floor. He did not think he saw an escort by her side. There must be a solution, he must quickly decide. Then as Strauss' walls started, he jumped up to his feet, The dance with this fine lady, his heart would feel the beat. He moved toward her cautiously, looking for her sign, and asked her for the dance at exactly the right time, she accepted graciously as she took her by the as he took her by the hand, they stepped out onto the dance floor. No couple looked so grand. they seemed to walk on air, a step and then a twirl. There was no place in heaven like being with this girl. As the dance concluded, he walked her to her table and thought a second dance he'd ask if she was able. She blushed as she accepted, and again out to the floor, he counted all his blessings as they started up once more. With style and grace and in harmony so sweet, they moved so well together as if, as they stepped to the beat. They danced the night away, no others could they see. The air was filled with magic as their feet went, one, two, three.
0: Oh, Gary, I love that. I would give anything for my husband to be able to put something like that in words. <laughs> Could you call my husband for me?
3: I can. I can. Just just leave me the number after the interview. All
0: right. Call him up and teach him how to run. That's beautiful.
3: We had taken dance lessons. We tried the waltz thing. I have about as much gift at dancing as I do at, uh, singing which isn't very good (laughs) and so she i had her in mind when i wrote that
0: that's beautiful gary i love it you going to keep doing this you're going to keep this up
3: i actually am working on a second one my sixth grandchild my second grandson was born after this book was sent to the publisher so basically there are no stories in there about him he has the perfect name for a private detective so i started tinkering with the idea and then i've began a book about the legend of Sherlock Cooper Hart. (laughs) I love it. And he, now this could end up being my second book because it's going on and on and on. It's a little bit, it's gotten way out of control. (laughs) It's a book. Do you go
0: and read your books to anyone?
3: Not anything yet. I mean, there's a little coffee shop in downtown Frankfurt that I go to kind of on a weekly basis. And there's a shelf full of books there. So if you're drinking your coffee, you can maybe read the book as you're going along. And so I thought, I asked the guy, I said, would it be okay if I put my book here? And he said, oh, yeah, sure. And, of course, I put a little note in the inside saying, hey, this book's for sale and you can get it at barnesandnoble.com. And, and you know, thinking, Man, maybe it'll help.
0: You should go down and read.
3: Well, I, I, I actually, uh, this winter... I think that's where Sherlock Cooper Hart's going to get finished. There you go. It's down there. I, it's just a nice little cozy atmosphere where you can have a cup of coffee, eat a blueberry muffin, and let your mind go into into that area where you need to be when you put these stories together.
0: I love it, Gary. Keep, keep it up, man. Great stuff.
3: I hope to, for as long as I can.
0: You know, you've got this kind of folksy way about you. Not that I've known you for what? I've known you for nine minutes now. And you just come off as a very folksy, kind of grandfatherly, approachable kind of a guy. I could just see you sitting there, you know, people drinking their coffee and and listening to you read.
3: I would would love to do that. Uh, I have read several of these poems to my grandchildren. And... uh, There are three of them in there entitled Vera Rose, which is my youngest granddaughter, and um, she just loves them to pieces. And she came up to me and she said, Grandpa, is there any way you can put that book in the library at my grade school? And I said, absolutely, we will, because I said, you need bragging rights, (laughs) and I think. And so... There you go. And that's what she's looking for.
0: <laughs> All right, Gary, thank you so much. Have a great day.
3: Hey, thank you for calling. Thank you for the interview.
0: There's so much talk about immigration these days, and maybe not enough talk about immigrant success stories like Jacqueline Atkins, who has made her story into a children's book. It's entitled From Panama to New York,
4: Jacqueline's Story. Yes, this is my story told in a realistic fictional format. I wanted Uh, The story to appeal to children. Uh, The story is true. The last chapter, I give the character uh, a different sport that I wouldn't normally do. I'm not a runner. I'm a distance walker, but I make the character run track towards the end. So my story is about me coming from Panama to New York. Um, As a kid, the main character, Jacqueline is nine years old when the story opens, but she turns 10. She lives with her grandmother and her sister, younger sister, Nana, in the country. And she's loved by her community and her family and her grandmother. Her mother lives in New York. Her parents are divorced. And her grandmother abruptly dies. And the character, Jacqueline, has to make a decision whether to stay with her father, who she loves and adores, or move to New York the United States with her mother, who believes it's time for her and her sister to live with her now that they don't have a caregiver, which is the grandmother.
0: That had to be so hard. You were so young.
4: Yes, yes. It was very difficult. So we made the decision. Our father at the time, which was unheard of, gave us voice and choice in the matter. He could have made the decision for us, but he, he allowed us to make the decision. And I miss my mother and wanted to be with her. And so I decided for both me and my sister that we would move to the United States. So in the story, I give Jacqueline the voice to make the decision for her and her sister, which she does. And they moved to the United States. It was very emotional and painful, but necessary. Because my father was a truck driver, he was not married. He could not remarry at the time. And he could not care for us. We were basically latchkey kids at home alone during the day when, you know, we came home from school. So the decision had to be made. It was just a very difficult decision. No English, spoke Spanish, and came to this country not knowing English, not reading English, not writing English. So it was very difficult in school.
0: So at that time, did you just go into the classroom and learn?
4: Yes, went into the classroom back in the 70s. There were no regulations. You had to be educated. So you went to school and you did the best you could. And so I watched TV. In the, the story, I also. Uh, talk about how Jacquelina and her sister came to this country, and their sister, Demetra, introduced them to Sesame Street and the Muppets. And listening to the characters and how they spoke, and the sounds of words, and looking at letters is what really helped to create this way for us to be able to learn the language. And of course, going to school with other children and listening. Jacqueline makes a friend, her name is Michelle, who helps her navigate a very painful transition to this country.
0: So having gone through that and now working in the New York City school system where there's how many languages spoken?
4: Over 30, we have nine approved languages in the DOE, but yes.
0: My husband had a similar experience as you did, like he was six. And he just comes over here and he goes to school and learns English. Boom. You don't have a choice. Do you learn faster because you have no choice? Like, does ESL make it easier?
4: Well, what's interesting is in the 70s, there was no ESL. They just put you in the classroom and you did the best that you could. So they don't have the programs that they have now where they have programs to accept children. So when Jacqueline and her sister Nana came to the United States, they were just placed in school because that was the law, but there were no programs to support the language transition. You, you did the best that you could. And, you know, my sisters helped helped us read and we did the best that we could. I don't even remember about passing and fail. I know I learned quickly. You know, the, the character learned quickly, and she tries to listen and observe. In the story, I talk about the very painful teasing that happened to Jacqueline as a result of her not knowing the language. In the book, she makes a friend. She has a best friend. Her name is Michelle, and Michelle seems to have a kindred spirit with uh, Jacqueline, and she understands her pain. Jack, uh, Michelle is also, you know, by herself. Her mother works nights and Michelle basically is raising herself as Jacqueline was when she was in Panama. And so they find a commonality amongst each other between the two of them and they become best friends. And Michelle is helped, you know, helps Jacqueline bridge that gap and supports her through this process and learning. And so towards the end, she comes to a country. She has a very difficult time, but she makes a friend. And this friendship between the two of them, sharing their culture, sharing different foods. Jacqueline learns to run track. Michelle supports her. And in the end, she feels very successful.
0: What a great book.
4: I submitted the book for an award and the, the book won a Mom's Choice Award for best product in that category, middle school category, and Reader's Favorite gave it a five-star review.
0: Jacqueline, that's great. How many school systems could use
4: books like this? Yes, and so I've donated over 300 books. You know, I purchased the books and I've donated them to different organizations who have loved the book and appreciated my service. So I am having a lot of fun with From Panama to New York, Jacqueline's story. I'm very proud of the story and everyone who's read the story loves it and is enjoying it. And so I'm really glad that you gave me the opportunity to do this interview and to talk a little bit more about the story. My next goal is to translate the book into Spanish and illustrate it. And once I complete that next year, then I'll think about what I want to do next.
0: All right. Excellent plan, Jacqueline. Thank you. Lauren Britt Washington also shares her story in A Beautiful Nightmare, The Pursuit of the American Dream. So I'm assuming life is a journey, not a destination. We know that. But sometimes it's
5: not all it's cracked up to be. I believed, hence the word believed, in the American dream. Uh, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps work hard save your money you know just go to work do the thing and you'll be able to achieve a level of success and i found the hard way that it does not work like that it's way more than just hard work it's a, a lot of missing pieces that i wasn't aware of that took me down this 15 year journey of trying to achieve this dream um the first eight years of this journey in Atlanta, I started out in a nonprofit and I knew this wasn't going to work. So I decided to quit my job. And that was one of the worst decisions I could have made because I quit my job without a plan. So I started out the book with a traumatizing event. I got arrested because I went into a a very dark place in my life. I got drugs, became a little alcoholic. (laughs) Um, So I laid the book out with the bad stuff happening. And then I went into uh, flashbacks of how I actually got to that point. And then I took the book of how that dark place brought me to Chicago. I got a degree in real estate in 2002 and I quit my job in 2005 to pursue entrepreneurship. So yep, I quit the job without a plan and I started a cleaning service. And I realized that I didn't want to do that, but I had already quit my job and I'd already started this business and i just decided that i don't want to do that let me go and sell real estate since i have a degree in real estate i got my real estate license and i sold one house in four years it was one of the most horrific things in life it was like somebody was just torturing me every month every year um so i spent four years trying to sell real estate and during that process my confidence took uh, just a deep deep dive every year every every month that nothing happened. I took a dive, and so by the end of those four years, I had a little hope left, and I decided to get my insurance license because at the end of the day, I just wanted freedom to be able to do what I want. You know, go in and out, no clocking in. So, on. so I got my insurance license, and that was just that was gruesome. And after that, after spending two years trying to hunt down a sale, and I landed one big client and the client that i landed the uh, my partner he they stole the client from me so i was left with zero in insurance just like i was with real estate and then my life just really just i i wasn't able i couldn't find a job anywhere and that's when the drugs and the alcohol kicked in and hanging out with a bad crowd but you know i was i'm very resourceful i'm very optimistic and um I kept seeing signs. I kept seeing uh, Illinois license plates in Atlanta. And I'm like, oh, I've always wanted to go to Chicago, like lived in Chicago. I came to Chicago in 2002 when I was getting married. A friend of mine is from Gary, Indiana, and she suggested we come to Chicago to go shopping. So I came to Chicago in 2002. I fell in love with the city. I didn't think that I would you know, move here and start a whole new chapter, but that's what happened. And everything that I experienced in Atlanta only prepared me for what was yet to come. So I get to Chicago and doors open. I'm able to work. But then it was a whole nother set of rules, a whole nother path that I wasn't aware of. That's a part of that beautiful nightmare.
0: So obviously you you find your way.
5: Yes. The Chicago, when I came to Chicago, I literally um was offered a job the first go round, so i submitted an application online and they called me like that had never happened in atlanta so i knew i was on the right on the right path before i got to chicago before i made the final decision to come to chicago i went to detroit because during that time flint had a water crisis so i decided to go there to volunteer to get my mom right and uh, while I was in Flint, sitting in a hotel, I went on Craigslist, and um, they were looking for a leasing agent. And I just decided to submit my resume. So when I got a call back immediately for an interview, I knew that things were different in Chicago. So as soon as I got here, I've been working ever since. Now, the funny thing is, I- I've only worked to maintain to stay above water. I. I I wasn't able. I haven't like, so I didn't come to Chicago and win the lottery. No, that's not what I I didn't win the lottery. Oh God. Oh, I didn't think I was going to win the lottery, but I thought maybe some things would be different. But to answer your question, Chicago opened up a whole new path in my career, which led me to property management. So while I got here, I was floating all around the city, the suburbs. um, And I end the book with, I left Chicago because it was a a rough path. I left and I came back to Atlanta. And when I came back to Atlanta, I got a call from a property in Chicago that needed someone permanently because up until that time, I was literally just floating. And when I got the call to come back to Chicago for some permanent, that's how I ended the book, as if it's another part to the story.
0: So what, what's the
5: lesson here? Never give up. You got to keep listening. I, that's, and I, that sounds so cliche. It is so cliche. And I wish I could come up with something else to say. But it, it really is. It's, it's really just whatever you feel in your heart and your soul to do in life. Go for is it. not going to be easy. I think that is what's missing when the, every, these motivational talks and all the all this stuff on internet to inspire you. No one keeps the journey real. Like it's a really, it's a rough journey. It's a rough path, um, but continue on that path or that journey. Because I look at it either either that or you die. There's no other option for me. Either you keep going or you die. As long as you got breath in your lungs, keep going after your dream. So that is the, I I don't know how many times you heard that today, (laughs) how many many motivational authors you have, but essentially that is it. That is it. The ending of the book, I, I had been in Chicago for a year. Now I've been in Chicago going on set. So it's five years after this book that I've lived in Chicago. But this book ends with me getting something permanent in Chicago to pick up. The next book that to explain the real Chicago. So I literally was just trying to make a lot of money in real estate. That's that was the goal when I first started this. I'm like, I'm just gonna make a lot of money in real estate and work for myself. I mean, I got the complete opposite, and and it was I was motivated to write this book because I was so shocked that literally just by doing one, two, three, A, B, C, that was not enough to get you to where you want to be. And I just didn't know. I I, I mean, I mean, that from the bottom of my soul, I really really didn't know what I was in for. It's a journey. It's a journey. And don't get off.
0: All right. I'll take that advice, Lauren. Thank you. Before Jermaine Gallo had a transportation business in L.A., he was an elementary school teacher in West Africa, where he came up with the idea for his book, Saboom Boom Saboomka, West African Tales and Legends.
6: I have to be precise. I'm from... West Africa, but Ivory Coast called Cote d'Ivoire. So the book is a little compilation of of tales and legends uh, that uh, part from my grand- grandparents and a part from my students, elementary school students. Yeah. So
0: it's a book of stories that you've collected from your family and from your students.
6: Yes, like a, yeah, a fiction.
0: It's a series of different stories. It's not one story.
6: Yeah, it's uh, just a legend. Legend is not really, it's just some tales that is part of a, a teaching, you know, because back home, we, we, we as children, in order to educate us, our parents usually tell stories so this is how we get educated and through those tales and the legend we have a moral okay you can do this you cannot do that
0: right yes so, so there's a lesson yes do you want to share one of your legends or one of your tales
6: with us yes uh, as i wrote here for instance uh, i would say the panic in the range for instance okay the panic in the range is uh, a story of um, during which uh, there is a drought, a drought that uh, led to a famine. So there is a, this cunning, a uh, you know, animal called Ari. He's it a he's really cunning. So he finds ways. He always finds ways to get the things done. First. So what uh, he did during the um, the drought that led to a famine. He he went to a barn that belongs to a man. A barn like you know where you have a livestock like you know you know all those ends or you know etc. So he went there and he studied man's behavior. In the morning, for instance, men man would uh, you know let all those livestock out, you know feed them, you know and uh, by when it's done will go away. So he observed, uh, you know, the man's, uh, you know, uh, uh, tricks, and uh, he applied it. So what he did was he took with him uh, a broom, a water pitcher, filled with water, and a little drum, because sometimes, you know, when the animals are, uh, you know, happy, you know, they just jump, you know, they just play around. So he went to the barn with a, a broom, Water pitcher and a drum. So the water pitcher is uh, to imitate the rain. When it rains, you know the animal, you know the rush to their barn. So the water pitcher will to provide water like and the broom is go, is gonna plunge the broom into the water pitcher and splash it into the air to make it uh, look like uh it's raining. And uh, he he also he has a little basket. He has a little. Uh, cage where he intended to rush the ends. So when he went there, okay, when he went to to get to, when I can summarize, when he gets to, to the bar, he first beat on the drum. He first beat on the drum and by the way, he, he also went on the course of his, uh, when he was going, he has also uh, some, uh, rice, uh, some rice, some rice stuff. So so he was uh, feeding them. He was uh, feeding the animals on the livestock. And then all of a sudden, he stopped beating the drum and a splash, or uh, he, he, he dumped, he put the broom in the water pitcher and a splash it. Into the air, and then it screaming. There's a rain, there's a rain. So there was a general panic. You know, I'm just, you know, when I write, I'm, I'm comfortable writing. So there was a general panic, and uh, some some um, livestock rush he opened his uh, cage, and the lesson is that some people in life can find ways regardless of any situation. You can find ways. They have a fertile idea. They have a, you can imagine a situation. They have to find their way out. So if there is a tough situation, some people will always find a solution. What you call the panic in the range? Some people, regardless of how difficult the situation is, they manage to find a way out. That's the number one.
0: And in that story...
6: That's a that's a general yeah you know, panic in the ranch.
0: They they find a way out. Yes. Now you had to translate all these stories, right?
6: Yeah, because this is a story I brought, I, I wrote in French first and then I translated into English. My native okay, my first language is French. So I wrote in French first. When I came here in America, I translated into English because I was perfect in my English, right. I was a student. school. Eventually this will be. Uh, is going to be a book that, you know, the, the school of children will read. I mean, actually, they will read it, you know. Those are uh, in um, what we call in a secondary school because we, we start uh, English in a secondary school. That's a lot of work. English is my secondary and I'm sleeping right now. But as far as the writing is concerned, just keep on writing. This is how you become a writer. There's no school per se by my mom. You become a writer, just a write. that's it. And then you do the grammatical parts as you read it and you re- arrange it. This is how I read, this is how I write. Writing is
0: rewriting, that's what they say, Jermaine. All right, thank you so much. And we hope you enjoyed this edition of the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. We hope to see you back here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first. I'm Alice Stacked Rosini. Rossini.